Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we bore witness to the grim and violent end of Gundervold, the usurper king. This week, we're going to reflect on his rebellion, and see how his betrayers handled the aftermath. We'll also outline how the political settlement that was forced upon Guntram by the pressure from Gundervold and his nephew Childebert II will set the stage for the next era of Merovingian politics. Scores are going to be settled in episode 48, A View of the Future. Let's start with the discussion of Gundervold and his hopes of being king. It is easy to dismiss Gundervold as launching a doomed rebellion. He was seen as an outsider, an interloper, a label he never managed to shake. He was also starting from scratch and going up against powerful kings like Guntram and Chilperic, who were decades into their reigns and had firmly established legitimacy and bases of power. He didn't seem to have much of an overall strategy when he landed, and he quickly faced setbacks. Generally, he seemed unprepared and somewhat unaware of the obstacles that he faced. This is basically the traditional view of Gundervold and other rebels like him. While authors like Gregory didn't always approve of everything the Merovingian kings did, they never questioned their right to rule. While sometimes pitiable, Sometimes brave, sometimes even inspiring, Gundervold's portrayal in Gregory's works is still fairly negative. As we've discussed before in this podcast, Gregory employs various literary techniques in his work. Gundervold benefits from a romantic framing, sometimes painted as a doomed rebel whose story is stirring in its tragedy. But he was always still doomed, and always a rebel. At no point does Gregory stretch to agreeing with Gundervold's Calsus Balli. That would be too far. For these authors living in their Merovingian context, anyone who was outside of the established line was an other, to be hated or feared. Gregory was more than happy to lament the death of the sons of Clodomer, because they were legitimate Merovingian princes. Since Gundervold's status as a Merovingian had always been in dispute, he did not benefit from the same sympathy. This brings us to major problem number one with Gundervold's rebellion, legitimacy. As we've seen, Merovingian rule in this period had begun to slip away from its roots in military power and become more and more reliant on perception and prestige. We only have record of Guntram fighting with his army once as king, when his kingdom was near collapse and he had no other choice. For Clovis, this would have been laughable, and even Clothar had embarked on several major campaigns. Since they were the acknowledged kings of Gaul, this reliance on personal military prowess was less important than a strong claim to the Merovingian name in this period. This was a problem for Gundervold. It was this change that meant, despite his military successes in southern and central Gaul, 
and the backing of important men like Mummelus and Desiderius. His rule continued to look rickety and quickly fell apart once faced with determined opposition. He simply wasn't perceived to be a true Merovingian. Now, was this an immovable obstacle? Well, it's hard to say. His evocation of Radigund and other external sources of legitimacy show that he had strategies to combat this perception of illegitimacy, but they seem to have been too little too late. Taking Radigund as an example, if he had moved early and successfully obtained her endorsement of his Merovingian blood, then perhaps things might have ended up differently. The next big issue I believe Gundervold faced was that of a stable base of power. Guntram, Chilperic, even Childebert II had the benefit of ruling from an established city and area. The three kingdoms had been solidifying for decades, which is why I've started to refer to them more and more by name. But they were still based on the original divisions of Clovis, and thus had established administrative capacities and the accompanying perception of legitimacy. This had developed rapidly, even in a single generation. Sigebert had taken Chilperic's capital multiple times, and had been on the verge of militarily deposing him, but Chilperic had struggled to do the same years later to Guntram, only ever mustering one serious challenge to his kingdom. Mostly the divisions were solidified, and the warfare was based on disputed border regions and politicking over the succession. Gundervold was again fighting against these trends. He was trying to carve out a kingdom for himself, mostly in the south and southwest of Gaul, and this posed major problems. This region did have large, rich cities, but had always been a hodgepodge of overlapping claims and a comparatively light administrative touch from the Merovingians. The power bases of Frankish power had always been in the north and northeast. The southwest was basically just a tax base for the kings. So not only was Gundervold working against trends of centralization and solidification of the kingdoms by trying to carve out a completely new one, he was also doing it in what was basically a political backwater for the Merovingians. Later in his rebellion, we have records of Gundervold talking about occupying Paris, and he also moved further and further north until effectively challenged by Guntram. These shifts could be because he had realised that he needed to move to these traditional power bases if he was actually going to have a chance at staying a king. The last factors I'd like to discuss are distance and changing methods of rule. Gundervold's backing came from the Eastern Roman court, and Constantinople had been intervening in barbarian politics for centuries at this point. They gave him a boatload of treasure, and basically let him go cause some trouble. The installation of friendly pretender kings, and use of cash money to pacify barbarian confederations, were tactics as old as the Roman state itself. But they didn't work as well in this period as they had before, because the nature of barbarian rule was changing. 
When Rome was trying to keep their borders secure before, it was from loose barbarian confederations. These confederations could be incredibly dangerous and destructive, but their central authority was weak. Leadership was mostly based on personal charisma. Even small setbacks could destroy internal unity as tribal groups felt little loyalty to a central authority, and the warrior class remained poor and without stable bases of income, making bribery more effective. The new successor kingdoms in the west were not like this. Justinian's invasions of the North African Vandal Kingdom and the Italian Ostrogothic Kingdom proved that Eastern Roman military power could still destroy these new states, but the effort was massive and had to be ongoing. Gone were the times when Rome could slip a few bribes in and throw an exiled royal back into the mix and these states would just dissolve. These kingdoms were now settled. Their rulers had come to agreements with the local elite, and their noble and warrior classes had established bases of income and authority that tied them to the central court. They weren't perfectly stable or even highly effective states, not by any means, but they were difficult to break up in these simplistic ways. Gundervold's appearance, with a boatload of cash and a disputed claim, but little in the way of concrete plans or ongoing support, looks a lot like this old style of Roman international politicking, and I would argue that it was a large part of his failure. So, was Gundervold's rebellion doomed to failure? Unclear, though I would suggest his chances of success were slim. He was working against too many broader trends. Without 2020 hindsight, we could point out things that he could have done differently to massively increase his chances, but we have the benefit of being able to identify the larger trends at work, and having the broad perspective to see how he could combat them. In the moment, these things are basically impossible to see, and Gundervold probably did his best. It is worth noting that he did succeed in amassing significant noble support, but these nobles proved to not yet be powerful enough to effectively challenge a Merovingian king. In a couple of generations though, this power balance will shift. When we talk about Childebert's grandsons, remember that I pointed this out. So, enough about Gundervold, he's already dead. Let's talk about his former allies. There were basically four key men left in Comanche. Marmalus, Bishop Sagittarius, Wado, and Chariolf. They were what was left of Gundervold's faction, with Marmalus being the most important. So let's track what happened to them, and the men who were left following them. Well, unsurprisingly, Things were not going to go great for the common soldiers. The night after Gundervold's death, these leading men left in the city, plundered everything they could get their hands on, including all of the church plate. When dawn came, they opened the gates and let the besieging army in. Now the army of Ludigasil had lost many men trying to storm the town, and probably many more of disease while they waited for the political schemes and negotiations to bear fruit. 
Once inside the gates, their rage and frustration spilled out onto the streets, and they began a savage sack of the town. Every common soldier, citizen, basically anyone left in the city, was massacred. Gregory writes of priests and their followers being cut down as they stood by church altars. He claims they were so thorough that, quote, there remained not one that pisseth against a wall, end quote. Once the killing was over, the besiegers set fire to the entire town, reducing it to ash and bare earth. Mamalus, Bishop Sagittarius, Chariolf and Watto were taken to Ludigasil's camp, secretly, so they wouldn't suspect the deal they had made was under threat, the general sent word to Guntram, confirming his capture of the men and asking what should be done with them. Soon word came back that the king ordered all of the conspirators to be put to death. It is here that Watto and Chariolf, less important conspirators and seemingly more informed, slipped out of the camp. They left their sons as hostages and deserted their comrades. Gregory records that a rumour began circulating after this that the two men had actually been killed by the soldiers. Hearing this, Marmalus, ever the military man, took action. He put on his armour and made for Ludicasil's tent. When he stepped inside, Ludgasil asked, quote, Why do you come here looking as if you were about to run away? Mumulus got right to the point. Quote, as far as I can see, no attempt is being made to keep the promise which you made to me. It is clear to me that you were planning my death. Ludgasil got up and sought to soothe Mumulus. I will come out and settle this business, he said, stepping out of his tent. He then immediately told his soldiers to surround the tent. They tried to force their way in, but Mumulus held them off for a while. But, eventually, he was forced to step outside, and was immediately run through on both sides by lances. A quick word for Mumulus. It is worth noting that he had begun his career as the most famous non-Merovingian general of the time, mostly thanks to his victories against the encroaching Lombards, saving many lives. For such a celebrated man, this was a truly ignoble end. Seeing the great general run through by common soldiers, the last remaining conspirator, Bishop Sagittarius, panicked. A bystander saw this, and encouraged him to cover his face with a hood and run from the camp. The bishop, afraid for his life, did so. This seems to have been a setup, as immediately a soldier drew his sword and beheaded the bishop, hood and all. All the men are dead, there are only a couple of loose ends left to tie up. Fredegund sent her trusty supporter Chupa which is still my favourite Frankish name, South. He retrieved the traumatised and humiliated Princess Rigwinth, and returned her to her mother. But here Gregory indulges in his favourite pastime of gossip, 
telling us that, quote, many people said that the real reason why he was sent was to entice Gundavald away with many promises, end quote. Which of course fell through, as Gundavald was already dead. No way of confirming this, obviously, though while it does sound sneaky enough to be like Fredegund, I do struggle to see how it would have benefited her to have Gundavald in her protection. But still, you never know when you'll need a rebellion in your back pocket. Maybe she was simply hedging her bets. The only remaining loose end was the treasure of Mumulus and Gundavald. Gundavald had left half of his treasure with Mumulus in Avignon, and Mumulus had a significant amount of wealth himself. After giving what treasure they found in Comanche away to the poor and the church, according to Gregory at least, Ludigasil and Guntram forced Mumulus's widow to reveal where the rest of his treasure was. Guntram sent men to fetch it from Avignon. The amount was pretty impressive. 250 talents of silver and more than 30 talents of gold. A talent is about 30 kilograms, so that's a lot of silver, and quite a bit of gold too. Guntram apparently gave some of the treasure to Childebert, then gave the rest to the poor. A generous gesture, only somewhat undercut by the fact that he had just effectively beggared Mumulus's widow, whose sons he had also just put to death. And that's basically it. Desiderius retreated back to his strongholds in the south, facing no consequences whatsoever. Wado, who had previously been Fredegund's man, sought sanctuary with Brunhild, where he was welcomed with open arms. Chariulf, who was basically just a rich man that had helped bankroll Gundavald towards the end, sought sanctuary with Gregory in the Church of St. Martin. That's really the end of the action in Book 7 of Gregory's Histories. We've been pretty laser-focused on the dramatic events that have been happening, and there's a bit of a lull in major events after this, so I'm going to try and mix it up a little for a while with some broader discussions and other perspectives. Before we end the episode though, let's do a quick look at the political situation in Gaul after the Rebellion of Gundavald. As I said at the start of the episode, the next era in Merovingian politics is basically already visible as the dust settles from Gundavald's rebellion. There are some key themes that we can already see that will become more and more important, so let's discuss them now. With Guntram's difficulties in Paris and Childebert's newfound prestige, the authority the senior king possessed had been diminished. He was definitely still the most powerful figure in Gaul, but any danger of him utilising this position to reunite his father's realm and become sole king is basically gone. His time in Paris proved far more difficult than he imagined. We are getting close to the second half of the Middle Merovingian period, and the northwestern kingdom Neustria will be a minor player for the rest of the period. But it will also resist all attempts of domination from the other kingdoms. Guntram's Burgundy, thanks to his formal adoption of Childebert, now has its fate tied to the northeastern kingdom Austrasia, 
This Burgundian-Austrasian axis will dominate the rest of the Middle Merovingian period, and the most powerful kings and most bitter conflicts will occur over who gets to rule these two kingdoms. The settling down of the kingdoms and the establishment of a more permanent balance between the three also means that politics is about to turn inwards. There's going to be fewer grand campaigns and basically no new conquests, but much more intrigue and politicking. The kings, their positions safer but also less flexible, are going to become more focused on legal and administrative affairs, a trend that will completely change the role of the Merovingian king. For those of you who enjoy conquest and battles, there will still be a bit of that, though less than before. For those of you who like the politics or the historical intricacies of social and cultural change, well, you're in luck. Next week, we're going to begin our discussion of the legal reforms and the changing face of Merovingian kingship in this period. It will be an ongoing discussion, but it starts with the men of this era that we have already discussed. The week after will be our 50th episode, where we'll do something entirely different to celebrate. See you then.